When Dorothy comes down with a mysterious illness, she begins the epic journey of diagnosis via multiple opinions. Sadly for Dorothy, she's an unwell woman in 1989, so every male doctor she's seen has dismissed her claims as being due to either old age or a mental health issue. But she will not give up and neither will Sophia, the protective mother always by her side, helping. While Dorothy deals with all of that and Rose supports her, Blanche is busy pursuing her destiny as a romance novel writer, even if she hasn't written a single word. Come along as we go to the doctors, a barbecue, and New York City in part one of Sick and Tired. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. Oh, you're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party. The phrase sick and tired has been around since the 1700s. It means exactly what it says. I'm sick and I'm tired. I'm sick and tired. And since we're starting a new season, we're greeted with new hairdos. And though I can't find a specific time frame, I do believe that B got her teeth done. Maybe they got capped over the summer between the seasons. And it gives a little bit of a change to the shape of her face. And she looks amazing. It's a lovely evening in the Richmond Street home where, of all people, Rose and Sophia are preparing dinner together. Some sort of Italian hergerflerger, I'm sure. After a summer break, the ladies are looking refreshed. Rose is in some casual light jeans, a white t-shirt, and low-cut pink sweater. And she has given Sophia, in a light blue dress and dark blue cardigan, the salad for tossing, just as Blanche, in an all-bright yellow outfit from her slacks to blouse, and a fresh-from-Eduardo perm, has come into the kitchen. She's feeling as excited as her outfit is yellow because she has just come up with an incredible idea— Being that this is Blanche telling the story, she can't just say what the idea is. She has to take us back to the good old days of magnolia trees and sweet tea. You see, back when she was little, her mother would say, Peacock, as that was Blanche's nickname, she told Peacock that she had a great destiny awaiting her. Sophia doesn't care about the pep talk. She's still hung up on why Blanche was called Peacock. Well, isn't it obvious? It's because of her stunning beauty. Her name should have technically been peahen, as that is the term for a female peafowl. Also, peacocks, the latter half of the word representing the genitalia of the species, they're the ones with the flashy feathers. It's usually the males who have to show off to earn a lady, unlike how it is for human American women for some reason. Rose disagrees with peacocks even being beautiful. They have weird, long, skinny necks. Ugh, and that noise... But maybe that's why Blanche related. She likes flashy clothes. She likes having a long neck. And when it's mating season, she screeches so loud the neighbors complain. 
Rose also hates that peacocks are aggressive toward chickens, a fact that Blanche does not care about as she was not named chicken. She was named peacock. And sorry, Rose, that actually isn't a fact. According to PeacocksUK.com, or as I read it, PeacockSuck.com, chickens and peacocks are very different, but they can be friends. If you do have both birds, just make sure that they all have adequate space. Peacocks are not inherently aggressive toward anything, really. They are a peaceful bird that can get along with chickens. Now, because of how much bigger they are than chickens, there can be instances of bullying, which brings us back to Blanche. Back to a Blanche that has become so annoyed at all of this nonsense, she's starting to look like a chicken with how her neck is jutting out, which I do agree with. She goes full-on chicken during the whole Lebanese thing. Imagine her choosing Rose over me. It's ridiculous as her arms are flapping like wings. Anyway, all of this is beside all of the points. The point, besides how beautiful Blanche was and continues to be, was that her mama saw more of a purpose for her than just being the mattress for every lonely sailor. Blanche was to be great. As a mother, Sophia knows that Blanche's mother was only saying that so she wouldn't drop out of school. So it turns out Blanche has spent all of these post-high school years seeking said greatness. And now it has come to her. She's going to write books. Specifically, she's going to write fictitious prose narratives or book length, typically representing character and action with some degree of realism, a.k.a. she wants to write novels. Coco, you're the book expert here. You've read before. I sure have. I was reading earlier today. That's incredible. Thank you. I'm not an expert, and I was doing some Googling, and there didn't appear to be an exact definitive answer. What to you is a novel compared to a book? Fiction. Oh, okay. Thank you for your time. <laughs> Thank you for this your has, time. This has been Literature Corner. <laughs> Coco's Corner. But what if I were to write a fiction book? That's automatically a novel? Yeah, didn't you say fictitious at the beginning of yes, your... Yes, well, that novels are usually almost always fictitious. But I just didn't know if that was like the... Defen there was nothing that said books you are know, I, this and novels are that. I'm reading, or not, not reading. I stopped reading because it's just the biggest book in the world. The Executioner's Song by Norman Mailer. And they call that, or it's branded as a true life novel. Fiction, man. Fiction is a novel. Novel is fiction. <laughs> Sci-fi novel? That's a science fiction novel. Oh. This has been Literature Corner <laughs> by Coco. Thank you, Coco. Of course, Blanche will be writing romance novels. Why, if she read through her diary, it would practically write itself. And once she starts, she will soon join the likes of other great Southern writers, such as those of which she cannot be bothered to say. Some of those famous names, which are too famous for her to name, are Ralph Ellison, William Faulkner, Thomas Wolfe, Harper Lee, Alice Walker, William Alexander Percy, Margaret Mitchell, and Booker T. Washington. I scored a one out of, I don't know, ten on that list that you just did. Of what you've read or who you knew? Who I knew. Harper oh. Lee sounded Southern, and I knew that that mockingbird was down <laughs> south. That's right. And I was right. I've definitely heard of Ralph Ellison, William Faulkner, Thomas Wolfe, uh, Margaret Mitchell, and Booker T. Washington. I think 
but Ralph I don't know Ellison what they've written. wrote the Invisible Man, not the oh, science fiction one. Oh, yeah, about I think I believe it's science about, fiction novel. It's not a sci-fi novel. Oh, and this has been Literature Corner. <laughs> Having a direction in life has Blanche feeling renewed. Using her own life stories, she'll be able to write a book and get a big advance in no time. Sophia doesn't see Blanche's life as a romance story so much as a sports report. To show off just how good her stories will be compared to some that are already published, she starts to read from the book in her hand. The book inspiring her life change is Lady Chatterley's Lover, the sexy novel was a sensation, causing uproar in 1929 when it faced trials and bannings for obscenity, including in the U.S., Australia, India, Japan, and Canada. Some of the words used to describe the relationship between the blue-collar male character and the socialite woman were so profane that some of the words could not even be actually printed. So, of course, it immediately sold millions of copies. Fun fact, as of now, Lady Chatterley's Lover is in the public domain, so be prepared for some inspired Fifty Shades-esque films. From Coco's Literary Corner, he now presents the foul words that could not be printed in Lady Chatterley's Lover. There are 13 episodes of sexual intercourse in the book. The word f or f***ing appears no less than 30 times, 14 times. <gasps> Balls 13 times, shit and arse six times a piece, four times, piss three times, and so on. I need to know why she's even talking about poop. And someone took particular issue with the repeated use of womb and bowels. Oh. Reading from the book, Blanche says... He grabbed her. She could feel his fingers pressing into her moist flesh. Her heart was pounding, her loins on fire, as he spun her around, her dress ripping open. Before we get to hear the rest of it, Blanche stops to point out that she has experienced these sensations many, many times in real life. Why, many times at first, I'm many, many times. <laughs> Naive Rose asks if the part Blanche has experienced so often was the heated loins. After a seductive pause, Blanche tells her, of course she has. She starts back at the book, but only gets one word in before Rose inquires as to the location of said loins. Poor thing. She's having a not-so-great-thinking day. So help it out, you tubing burbles! Blanche still can't be bothered with all of Rose's questions, so she goes back to reading. But I can help you, Rose. Vocabulary.com tells us that the term loins goes back to the old French word Loing? I don't speak French. It's L-O-I-G-N-E, which means hip or haunch. It's also related to the Bible term loin, meaning part of the body to be covered with clothing. But if you use the term at the butchers, you'll get a cut of meat from the animal's low back and or side. Pork loin is called a donkey <laughs> d Excuse you? Pork loin is called no, a donkey what, d what are you talking about? Where? Who? Well, you get a pork loin at the, at the store. <laughs> It's like a long loin of meat, and it looks like a big old dick, and people call it a donkey dick. Like you could walk up to the no, meat counter I and mean, say, maybe. could I get a donkey dick? And they're going to be like, one <laughs> order of pork loin coming right up. Okay, yeah, let me be. Let me disclose fully. Please. This is an ex-girlfriend's <gasps> term that I believe her family used. <laughs> and 
I don't know. Her dad was in the military and her, well, I can't say anything. I don't want to say anything else. Yeah, yeah. But uh, please don't. They called it donkey. Wow. I figured other people did. I knew that you, I feel like you weren't really a loin eater. Well, I'm not a meat person, so I'm not the person to ask. But I tell you what, next time I'm at the grocery store, I'm going to ask. Yeah. I'm going to say, do people order pork loin via saying Has... donkey? Yeah, just ask if the lingo back behind the scenes. Yeah. In the back of the house. Oh, who knows? They got some crazy lingo. The back of the butcher block. Yeah. They're talking crazy. They're doing crazy. They go out to have a cigarette break. They're just covered in blood. We're fine with this. Well, that's a great fun personal story. And I have a fun personal story, which is that I have a cleaning job that cleans corporate kitchens in a big skyscraper. And we don't do this floor anymore, unfortunately. But on one of the floors, they had a bookshelf which was all, you know, it was like leave a book, take a book kind of a thing. And they always had religious books, textbooks, memoirs, all sorts of junk. But they always had a stash of romance novels, which I love that they're like, you know what? Now that I've read this, I'll take it to the office. I always love that that was the thought pattern. And whenever we got to the floor, I would always take my break on that floor because I would rummage through the shelf, find a good book, throw it open to a random page. And to my mother and our two coworkers, I would read to them the best part I could find. And my favorite euphemism that I ever got from one of those books was his pulsating man root. Blanche gives no thought to Rose's question about loins and continues with her tawdry tale. But Rose can't let it go. She wasn't even aware that humans had loins. She's only heard of it on a pig, which for Sophia is the same difference when it comes to Blanche. (gasps) How rude. But there's no time to be offended. Blanche needs to tell the newly arrived home Dorothy about her destiny, peacock, and loins. But Dorothy, in a long floral skirt and sad mint green matching blazer slash button-down slash hoodie, does not have it in her for one of Blanche's stories. The reason Dorothy doesn't have it in her is because she is exhausted. Why, that very day she had a sub-job, and while she was speaking to the class, a class that was all goofed up on correction fluid, She suddenly became so fatigued that she did not have the energy to speak, so she just let the class out. The reason behind this exhaustion? A flu that Dorothy has been fighting for weeks and weeks, which has her totally run down. The girls give us some basal exposition, explaining that Dorothy has been feeling sick for months and that this seems to be more than the flu. And maybe Dorothy should go to the doctor. But she has. Twice. And each time, her concerns were dismissed. With all of that cleared up, Blanche would like the focus to go back to her now. Defending her ill friend, Rose points out to Blanche just how bad Dorothy looks. But Blanche didn't say anything about Dorothy looking good, just that she wasn't sick. I think the trick here to making Dorothy look sick was that they just didn't put lipstick on her. Inspired, this gives Blanche yet another amazing idea. The lead character in her novel will also be ill, but she won't look so terrible. And a doctor will save her. Moved by her own words, Blanche needs someone to start writing down about her doctor with soft hands and a poet's soul. Dorothy is still in the dark as to what the hell Blanche is even talking about. Focused on only her daughter's illness, Sophia gets back onto that important topic, telling Dorothy to find a specialist or to get referred by the doctor she's already gone to. Not knowing what she's even sick from, Dorothy doesn't know what kind of specialist to even ask for. Hearing that Dorothy's health has only been declining, Blanche continues to be inspired. Yes, her heroine will have the same declining health. 
Unknowingly, Dorothy will be sharing a lot of traits with Blanche's character, except for the looks. This isn't a horror or sci-fi story. Ouch, Blanche. Now, Coco, I know you don't know this, but other listeners will know this. Now, isn't this ironic how Blanche is suddenly all about taking Dorothy's actual life story to turn it into a book when she has some very strong feelings about that in the future regarding someone else? You know what I'm talking about? This Blanche, I tell you. Coco, you'll know soon. As Blanche leaves, Dorothy asks Rose for a reminder to be set that when she's healthy enough that she needs to kick Blanche's ass. Ooh, we are not at Biscayne Bay Hospital, but we are at a new location. Inside, we find a medical office where Dorothy, holding tightly to her oversized daring-to-open medical robe, is patiently waiting on an observation table. Her doctor, Ellen... Come back and sit down. Frankie, what's the matter with you? Why'd you have to upset her like that? Diane! I make a nice dinner, look what happens. Sorry, her doctor is actually Dr. Stevens, who is coming in the room via the tallest door to perhaps have ever existed. The evil Dr. Stevens is being appropriately played by the allegedly inappropriate Jeffrey Tambor. Of the over 200 roles he has appeared in, some of the better-known ones were in Transparent, the show from which he was fired from due to accusations of sexually inappropriate behavior— Over the years, he has apologized for making anyone feel uncomfortable, but has also acknowledged he's not the easiest person to get along with and or work with. Other shows and movies he's been in were Arrested Development, where he portrayed Donald Trump, I mean George Bluth Sr., The Orville, Trolls, Law & Order SVU, Bob's Burgers, The Hangover Film Series, Kojak, Taxi, Three's Company, Mr. Mom, Max Headroom, Empty Nest, where he also played a doctor, There's Something About Mary, Meet Joe Black, Girl Interrupted, Coco's Favorite, Teaching Mrs. Tingle, and Don't You Know It, La La. His catchphrase from his time as sidekick Hank Kingsley on The Larry Sanders Show is still hanging around to this day. Hey now. There, you just said it again, and, you know, I asked you not to say it. (laughs) You say, and of course, my sidekick Hank. And of course, my sidekick Hank. Hey now. Hank. That's a sentence. No. Hank, listen. Hey now. Just cut down on it. Could you do that, please? The appointment is not off to the best start when Dr. Stevens calls Dorothy Lorraine. She corrects him, but he argues because he's holding her chart. Like with the foreign exchange debate, she threatens to show him her ID to prove it. Now that the doc has the correct chart, he can get to Dorothy's diagnosis. Well, not quite yet. There's still the matter of Dr. Stevens' ego and how he insists on working in a humble brag about the patient he was working with. Dorothy does not care about any of this. She also knows that sharing private patient information is illegal. So this moment is doing well to make her feel better. The doc continues. He couldn't be there in time because of a very, very important patient. A man that, if Stevens was on the Pictionary-inspired game show Win, Lose, or Draw, he would draw a crown. A royal man that he isn't at liberty to talk about. Moving on, Dorothy would like to know the results of her tests. But the doctor's not interested in the results, which leads to a tit-for-tat. Dorothy doesn't care who it was. She wants to know about her condition. Doc Stevens doesn't care about Dorothy's condition. He wants her to guess what royal family member he was treating. When Dorothy says it could have been the King of England for all she cared, the doctor corrects her. At that time, England did not have a king, and in my opinion, still doesn't. Any man who tantrums over a leaky pen or needs his food cut for him or continues to perpetuate obscene wealth and colonialism is not a king. 
Prince Charles forever. And no, Prince Charles was not the patient in question. Fed up, Dr. Stevens gets more specific, telling her it was Saudi Arabia. Great. Now they can move on to getting Dorothy answers and dressed. The great news is that they ran every test they could, and everything came back clear. There's officially nothing medically wrong with her. But Dorothy won't let there's nothing wrong be the answer because she knows that something is wrong. Up until this flu situation a few months back, she was a healthy, active, vibrant woman. Now she's suffering from fevers, low energy, sore throats, achy muscles, complete fatigue. The doctor knows all of this because she has told him all of this. Okay, but just because you heard her say something doesn't mean you were listening. So Dr. Stevens takes a different approach. He starts to ask Dorothy about her personal life. Knowing she's divorced, she's probably not dating much. Getting on his soapbox, the doctor basically says, you aren't dating men, so you must be lonely. And lonely people get depressed. And depression can look like all sorts of things, especially the symptoms that you're experiencing. Realizing she is not going to be taken seriously, Dorothy goes into greater detail about her symptoms. She has days she can't get out of bed, days she doesn't have the energy to wash her hair, days she can't even speak. She has confusion, heart palpitations. She's scared. I'm pretty sure that if Dr. Stevens had been practicing medicine early in the century, he would have been one of those, you, ma'am, are hysterical. Here, let me relieve you. Unsympathetic to Dorothy's pleas, he basically says, eh, I've told you you're fine, but you don't want to believe me, the doctor, so go ahead and blow your money on more treatment and tests. In a somewhat kind moment, he does refer her to the neurologist that he studied under and promises that if she goes to New York to see him, he will find the cause of this issue, if there really is one. When the office door opens, we learn Sophia has been waiting for nearly three hours for the doctor to come back. Sheesh, what was up with that Saudi Arabian king? In a beautiful navy blue dress with a large light blue scarf slash ribbon, Sophia is wondering what has been taking so long. Meeting the supposed doctor, Sophia starts to lay in to Dr. Stevens. Dorothy may know her body and he may know medicine, but Sophia knows Dorothy better than anyone and she knows something isn't right. Dorothy begs her mother to back off, but for those of us with pit bull parents, we know that there is no use. It's better to just let them get it over with. When the doc tells her Dorothy is 100% tip-top shape, she claps back. If she's 100% fine, why is she sick? That's when he tells her it's in her head. Adjusting the ribbon on her neck like a tie before a fight, she asks with her best Brooklyn tattoos. Why is it Mr. Tip-top 100% mental thinks that Dorothy isn't sick? Sure, Dorothy is older, and yeah, her jaw makes a click-clack when she eats, and veggies make her gassy, but even with all of that, she isn't suffering from a mental condition, a defense that Dorothy is sort of appreciative of. Back at the house, we're being treated to a not-often-seen barbecue. As exciting as it may be for us, it is not to Sophia, who is not looking forward to a battle between her dentures and the ribs. As Sophia sets the table wearing a blue and floral dress, Dorothy looks on as she reads a magazine from a lounge chair draped in layers of indistinguishable blouses, scarves, and blankets. She's interrupted, though, when her pitmaster, Rose, in a light pink dress covered by a denim overall-inspired apron, says under her breath that 
St. Olaf didn't have barbecues. We never had a barbecue in St. Olaf after the tragedy. (laughs) The audience laughs as they already know where this is going. Dorothy doesn't look directly at her mother, more to a distance, far away, where she doesn't have to placate Rose. Rhetorically or not, she says, I guess we have to ask. To which Sophia, who is also not looking at Dorothy, answers, Nuh-uh. Still staring off, Dorothy reminds Sophia that even if they don't ask, Rose will find a way to tell this story. So she gives in, asking, what tragedy? Thankfully, Rose can't talk about it. Just like Dr. Stevens, if she was on win, lose, or draw, she would use hints like barbecue, elk meat, a large fire, and a clumsy person. I'm sure you can put those pieces together, just like Dorothy and Sophia did. Joining the ladies is Blanche in white cuffed pants and an oversized green sweater. And now that she's suffering from self-imposed writer's block, she has a better understanding as to why the famed writer Ernest Hemingway took his own life. Sorry to say, Blanche, his death was not a result of writer's block. According to UMAS.com, Andrew Farah, M.D., spent 17 years studying Ernest Hemingway's life, family, and medical history for the purpose of better understanding what led to the self-inflicted gunshot wound on July 2, 1961. What was found was a mix of dangerous ingredients that, when put together, made for a disaster. Hemingway's father died of suicide. He had two sisters that also died. He was predisposed to suicide. He also suffered from several injuries, including head trauma. They were caused by two plane crashes, car crashes, boxing matches, and playing football, leading to him developing what is now known as CTE. Because of his history, condition, and overall health, Hemingway self-medicated via drinking and spent most of his time around people suffering from alcoholism, depression, or some combination of both. If you are struggling with your mental health in any capacity, you can always call or text 988, where professionals are waiting to talk to and help you in any way possible. Hearing Blanche's bitching, Sophia cannot be bothered. Writer's block is one thing. A bowel blockage keeping you from pooing for 10 days? Well, that's a whole different level of frustration. Something Coco and I learned about thanks to Bachelor in Paradise. We've tried options here and unfortunately it didn't progress the way we wanted it to. We talked about more aggressive treatments than just the the laxatives you had before. Sam's really thriving here with Aaron S. And we're all just waiting around seeing, did she poop? No luck. He actually thinks that I should go home, so I will be leaving Paradise. It's literally a copy situation. (laughs) You know, I don't want to brag or anything, but I pooped several times. Oh, you (laughs) do? As everyone recovers from Sophia's jarring comparison, Blanche continues to describe her painful situation, how she's just sitting, waiting, hoping for hours on end, not dissimilar to Sophia's story. Trying to help, Dorothy inquires as to just how far Blanche has gotten into her novel. Did Blanche stutter? She has writer's block, so she hasn't written anything, which puts her at the same level as all of us non-writers an idea that goes over both Blanche and Rose's heads. Knowing Dorothy is headed to New York to see her specialist, Blanche is inviting herself to join. She can take in the art, the culture. She can stay at famed hotel, the Algonquin. The hotel was opened in 1902, and the original owner wanted it to be the home of culture, so they actually offered discounted rates for authors. So if Blanche went there, perhaps she would get out of her funk. 
Dorothy appreciates her self-invite for the two-day trip, but she's already planning on taking Rose. I could see why you wouldn't want to take Blanche. She's outright saying that she wouldn't be supportive of Dorothy. She only wants to meet her writer's block needs. But it is a little surprising that she would ask Rose and not take Sophia. Her mother has no issue standing up to doctors, and while there, they could have swung by Brooklyn. A more direct answer is that Rose is comforting. When Blanche tries to defend herself, Sophia defends Dorothy's choice, reminding Blanche that she was getting her toes done at the salon when her husband died. Plot a whoopsie. Okay, I understand that you may get a few storylines or locations mixed up through the years, but the writers really didn't remember or have written in the character Bible that on the 15th episode of the series, In a Bed of Roses, Blanche told the classic story of when the police officer called her at home to break the news, crunch, crunch. And then he said, crunching his chips. Oh, he's dead. (laughs) Wrong way driver, hit him head on. Totally dead, ma'am, crunch, crunch. Does that ring a bell? It, It rang it. I fully recall this as a memory in my mind because I watched it. And when you said it, I said, Ah, yes. (laughs) Isn't that, that seems like a little bit of a big whoopsie. They spent a fair amount of time on an episode discussing how George died in a car accident late at night. We're just now at the start of season five, so it's only been a couple seasons ago that that episode happened. That someone on that team would have said, hey, people might remember that George died this way. I get that they're making the point of, showing how cold Blanche is. But I do feel like it could have been anything else. I guess dying's the worst, but it could have. Why wasn't it her mother dying or a kid being in a, a play or a recital or something, you know, that she was getting her toes done? That's all. Someone going into labor, you were getting your toes done. This Thank is you. horse <laughs> That's what I'm saying. This is donkey dick and horse <laughs> In this timeline, it was the third Thursday of the month, so of course Blanche was getting a pedicure, giving the same logic as a conversation with my mother. She couldn't have skipped getting them done. Her nails would have looked atrocious throughout sandal season. Besides, it's not like Blanche would have gone if she knew that George was going to die right then. Perhaps in a bid to save their whoopsies, the writers have Rose add that George had been in a coma for days. So maybe he was in the accident and the officer thought he was dead, but he survived and had been in a coma. As selfish, narcissistic, and flat-out cruel as Blanche can be at times, knowing just how much she loved George, it really is impossible to imagine even her leaving his side. But it does the job of proving why Dorothy is not taking her with. At this point, Blanche doesn't even want to be Dorothy's support as much as she wants to win being chosen to do so. To add to her resume, she shares that she had been a candy stripper. That is a very different vocation than being a candy striper, a job both Rose and Sophia have had at the hospital, which we've talked about before. This entire interaction only serves to prove Dorothy right. Dorothy is sick. Rose not only validates that, but she does what she can to help. Blanche knows Dorothy is sick because she won't shut up about it. Pouting as she realizes she's been beat, Blanche sulks about Rose getting to go to the Big Apple, or as Rose says, the Big Potato, which is in Idaho. When this comment earns a look from Blanche, Dorothy tells her Rose is going for support, not her intellect. Is there an actual Big Potato in Idaho? Yes, they dropped the Big Potato for New Year's. 
at the Capitol building, they have a beautiful downtown and they have a beautiful Capitol building. And instead of the disco ball or whatever, they have the big potato that goes down for the, the countdown. I'll show you a video when we go inside. Everyone else, have a listen. Auld Lang Potato. <laughs> I thought, gosh, we could drop a huge potato for New Year's in downtown Boise and just kind of went from there. Holy cannoli, it's New York City. That's right. The Brooklyn Bridge, the ferry, the Twin Towers. You can't say that. Yes, I can. In the swanky Manhattan office, we find Dorothy, sans Rose, and she's being berated by some hotshot New York City doctor. Instead of saying, wow, look, you have been to a ton of specialists and you've had tests done and nothing has come up. But yourself and your support system can all tell something is wrong. So we better keep working on it till we find an answer. No, he doesn't say that. He's a man, and he's a man in the late 80s, early 90s. And he's dismissing her. She's getting older, so she feels more tired. That's all. Switching gears, the doc asks Dorothy how she got to his office after flying to New York. She took a cab and then walked into his office. He then weaponizes her answer and compares her lack of illness to the very real physical symptoms of the patients he works with. Like the other doctors, he suggests speaking to a mental health professional. Not only has she done that, but she has two letters of she ain't squirrel food to give him. Based with that rebuttal, the doctor then dismisses psychiatry altogether as junk science. This is so confusing because he just told her to see a psychiatrist, but he's also undermining it. Well, he only told her that because it was the only hope he could give her. It wasn't like he was going to send her to the deserts of the Southwest to meet with a person regarded as having access to and influence in the world of good and evil spirits, especially among some peoples of Northern Asia and North America. Typically, such people enter a trance state during a ritual and practice divination and healing, a.k.a. a shaman. When it comes down to it, the doctor is not convinced anything is wrong with her. Even as she starts to stand up and leave without a goodbye, he's twaddling on about how she isn't young and maybe she should see a hypnotist or change her hair, go on a cruise. With a nod of, I guess I'm screwed in the getting help department, Dorothy leaves. Playing Dr. Bud, who is no friend of Dorothy in either sense, is Michael McGuire. His 40-year career had him appearing in One Life to Live, Mannix, Columbo, The Six Million Dollar Man, Kojak, Hawaii Five-O, Police Story, Wonder Woman, All in the Family, MASH, Taxi Chips, Newhart, MacGyver, Cheers, Law and Order, Empty Nest, and many episodes of the classically campy 60s show Dark Shadows. Here is Michael being properly overdramatic. And boy, do I wish you could see the face and makeup in this shot. You have been charged with a crime of witchcraft. And this tribunal has found you guilty on each and every one. You will be sentenced to death in a manner prescribed by this tribunal at a later date. Death is merely an extension of life. Judah Zachary will live on and he will have his revenge. 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 And now we get to see the glamorous hotel rooms of... New York City. Rose is on an actual bed of roses. Looks like the hotel got a discount on the JCPenney line of very floral bedding. 
As Rose is on the phone to room service, she learns quickly the city and the luxury hotel life of room service ain't for the cheap. Saved by the door being opened by Dorothy, Rose gets off the phone and checks in on her friend. Sadly, Dorothy only has bad news. That's right, Sven. It's bad. Nothing new came from this tip-top dock. Dorothy doesn't want to be upset, so she wants to know how Rose has been after having a day alone in the big city that she's never been to. Really, guys? You couldn't wait a little bit and have Dorothy, a native New Yorker, take Rose out and about? I mean, I know she's ill and doesn't have the energy, but one little cab ride around or a boat ride or something? It's no surprise that the height, population, and sounds of the city have been overwhelming. Bloomingdale's alone, the department store, was bigger than all of St. Olaf. After that, Rose went to the Empire State Building. As we speak, it's actually the four-year anniversary of what I feel was Coco and I really solidifying our friendship when we took a trip to New York City. I don't know when the Empire State Building started charging, but the oldest price I can find is 11 bucks from back in 2000. Hopefully Rose didn't have to pay anything as she went to the top. Once there, she could only think about how King Kong didn't die when he fell. As she goes on telling her story to Dorothy, she realizes that Dorothy is sobbing. Thinking the cause of the tears is Dorothy recalling the sad story of Kong, Rose rushes to her side to comfort her. Catching her breath, Dorothy says the crying is because she's fed up. If all of these doctors have been telling her she's crazy, maybe she is. If no one can give her an answer, she must be crazy. So maybe she needs to come to terms with the idea that she's losing it. That's when Rose proves why she was chosen for the trip. She immediately validates Dorothy. She has seen those changes. She knows something isn't right. Dorothy's not crazy. She's sick, and she needs to find the right doctor to help her. Rose reminds her that just because someone is a doctor, it doesn't mean they're always right or always know the answer. For example, look at Dr. Seuss. Back at the house, Rose, in a white and floral dress and an oversized coral sweater, and Blanche in a tote pant and shirt combo, except for the baggy white sleeves, are standing at the kitchen island prepping dinner. It appears Blanche has gotten over her blockage, and she's planning on finishing her book that night. For her, it's been like popping Pringles or giving birth. Once you start, you can't stop. Of course, Rose has an appropriate St. Olaf story, saying that her friend Ingrid did stop. Not writing, but birthing. She was giving birth to her twins, Hans and Franz. And we want to pop you up. But once she gave birth to Hans, she stopped. She'd had enough. So Franz stayed behind. He stayed in there so long that they were actually in different grades. A story Blanche is trying to not believe. From the Cleveland Clinic, superfetation is a rare event that involves getting pregnant a second time when you are already pregnant. It's so uncommon that cases of superfetation often make headlines. Basically, what happens is for some reason, your body or something in your ovaries doesn't get the message that you already have a fertilized egg going on and it releases an egg. And in that time, if you happen to have intercourse, that time being a two week window, you can fertilize that second egg and be pregnant up to, you know, what, what would that be? 18 months, 17 months and have two different aged children. What a nightmare. But also maybe not. You get it over with. And then you don't have twins. Are they twins? I'm my own grandpa. (laughs) 
The plus would be if you were wanting to have two kids, but not twins, you could, if you were pregnant and then maybe eight months into it, you got pregnant again. Sure, you're pregnant for a year and a half, but your kids are different ages. They're a weird amount of time apart. And then you're done having babies. Before Blanche can get sucked too far into the Franz rabbit hole, Sophia in a dark green dress and matching cardigan has come in. She looks as defeated as Dorothy feels. Since coming back from New York, Dorothy has been depressed, and it's clear she is not okay. Blanche and Rose try to build her spirits, promising her that Dorothy is going to find an answer. And Rose has yet another story from St. Olaf. Gustav Lundquist, for example, nearly died from a mysterious illness. By nearly, she means he actually died. At the burial, his widow was hysterical, claiming her husband was still alive, and made claims about their personal tax history, stating facts that only Gustav's business partner knew. With that bit of info, everyone figured he must have been buried alive, so they rushed back to unbury him. Opening up the coffin, they found a dead man. The anticlimactic moment has Blanche pissed, and she wants to know what the point even is of the stupid story. Well, the point is that Gustav hadn't died from the disease. He had survived, but he was in the coffin when he came to. So he was dead in the coffin, but because he had suffocated. Blanche is starting to doubt the validity of these tales. Even worse, the IRS, knowing of the back taxes situation, had come to the cemetery. As they went to arrest the business partner, he grabbed the sheriff's gun and took his own life. Jeez, Rose, this is a family show. The good news was, and yes, Finn, it was good news, was that all of the Bergstrom family, the partner, and all of their friends were standing there, and they had an open coffin just down in the ground. So they pushed him over and had a double burial, against the wishes of Bergstrom, who had wanted to be cremated. All of this nonsense has Blanche lashing out with a rightfully deserved, Shut up, Rose! Lost in her own concerns, Sophia says there's nothing worse than having a child die. Blanche blames Rose's story for causing Sophia so much concern, but Sophia isn't really listening. She's too worried. As she continues to voice her concerns, the girls continue to support her, saying Dorothy is going to be okay. They both know that Dorothy will be fine. In fact, since Blanche is a writer, she can use her keen eye and advanced perception to... Before she can brag further, she earns a version of Shut Up, Blanche, from Rose. The three of them have something in common. They have lost their husbands. They know what death is like. Well, Blanche knows what it's like to get a pedicure in the face of death. Sophia knows what they mean, but she's been around longer and knows too well what death is like. And what death is like is watching her healthy 50-something-year-old child become debilitated by a mystery illness. Whatever is causing that might not have a name, but it's still harming her. It's not like the very first guy who had the plague knew it was the plague. On that very sad and serious note, the episode has come to an end. Coco, first time viewing, and I know you're ner- you're scared, you're nervous for Dorothy. That was going to be my first comment was at the end of the episode, there were tears in my eyes because I felt such concern for Dorothy. And I can't imagine what it is, though I'm going to guess. Oh, I would love to hear a guess. I think maybe she has menopause. Okay. Or I think... Maybe she needs to get something like a transplant. Oh. Maybe an organ is failing. Something deeper that they're not finding on a test. Yes. Okay. I'm very excited to watch the next episode. If I'm wrong, may God have mercy on my soul, and I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, hey, you're no doctor. And it's no real patient. That's right. It's a TV show. I'm a professor. 
<laughs> and this has been Medical Corner. <laughs> Next week, we'll have part two and my own two cents about dealing with a somewhat similar situation, as I'm sure so many of you listening have. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we'll talk Tremors, Endometriosis, The Brady Bunch Movie, and Park Overall in part two of Sick and Tired. Thank you for your insight, as always, Mr. Coco. Professor. Professor Coco. Professor. I did not go to college (laughs) to not be called Professor. She's assuming things about literature, and I won't have it. Yes, this is Professor Coco from Literature Corner. Hey, run to the store and get some donkey I roasted a nice donkey for dinner, everybody. Like I want a cow. I want a cow's teeth. Oh. I don't. Get some uh, someone rubbing bark. Oh. If you know what I mean. <laughs> what a tease. <laughs> what a what a what a little tease you are in a trap. That's right. A little spoiler. Little little <laughs> secret tramp. Little. <sighs> <laughs> That's what they call me. Little secret tramp. Little secret tramp. It's the worst kept secret in town. Wink. Josh's favorite. Oh my God, you're not Josh. Tracker. Tracker. We gotta get Tracker in here. We gotta get to tracking. But don't, don't he? Draped in layers of indistinguishable blouses, scarves, blag, blaggy. And another highlight was watching Titanic a bunch in that filthy hotel room. We watched Titanic. We watched Speed. We watched Enough. There was that whole... I watched Enough twice. They got donkey on that grill. No, they're having ribs. Pulling out her dentures. That's just a donkey with a bone. Oh, my God. Yo, can I get a boner donkey Debone my donkey dick. <laughs> Stat. I'm going to need you to debone my donkey dick. What, are you busy doing something else? Because nothing's more important than getting you to debone my donkey dick right here, right now. i never seen donkey deboning lips like those in all my life. Working at the slaughterhouse. <laughs> I'll tell you what she did. She deboned my donkey dick. If you know what I'm talking about. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.